morning. We're going to be reading from Mark chapter 6, um, verses 30 through 44. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them coming and going and recognized them. And they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by the hundreds and by the fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves and gave the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. All right. Well, I think our headset mic finally exploded. So uh, the day was coming. It either exploded or I just can't figure out how to turn it on. It could be either. Um, But I I get to go stand up comedian mode once again. Uh, Always good. Um, If you're new, welcome. My name's Cameron. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, It's a joy to worship with you all. Um, And we are going to examine the scripture that Annie just read for us. Uh, the next passage in Mark as we've been making our way through the gospel. But, but I, I think I need to tease something up um, because there, there are stories, um, whether it's in the Bible or elsewhere, that, that can more or less function kind of as self-contained units that you, you, know, you don't really need any outside information to understand what's going on. They kind of supply everything you need to understand and interpret and make sense of what's going on inside the stories. And then there's ones that basically can't be understood apart from all kinds of background information, or at least you'll miss huge swaths of what's going on. And I was thinking a perfect example of this is actually in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I'm not, I'm not like the world, I am into some pretty nerdy stuff, uh, but I'm not the world's biggest Marvel, Marvel Studios fan. I, you know, I like, I've seen probably most of the movies. I think I've seen most of the TV shows. I enjoy them on a, a scale. Some I really like, some I don't like. But at this point, I kind of feel like you, you kind of know what you're getting at this point. It's a little, some of the magic's lost for me. Nonetheless, I assume everyone in this room has seen a, at least some of these movies. Remember the first time you saw Iron Man 1? All right, Iron Man 1 came out out of nowhere. It's kind of an obscure comic book character at the time. The movie came out, and it's, it's just like a nice, simple story, probably still one of the best films in the MCU, and it's like, great, it introduces you to the character, his technology, how it works, this is great, story's resolved, works great. Take that, and then compare it to like the last Avengers film, Avengers Endgame, and I'll, I won't spoil it if you didn't see it, but Avengers Endgame basically had to serve as like the culminating film 
over like the 24 or however many movies that had come before. So it's jam-packed with characters, and not only that, but it, it takes time to like go back and revisit key moments from like the history that had come before in the previous films. And I just remember watching that movie and being like, I mean, this was really fun. I really enjoyed it. I, I think it's a cool movie. But like, if you hadn't seen most of the Marvel films, you would just be sitting there like, what on earth is going on? As a standalone story, it, it, it's basically useless. Um, if you know the context and know the history and know what led up to those events, then it's amazing, it's powerful. It's like, wow, how'd they pull this off? 10 years of storytelling wrapped up succinctly. That's the difference. Um, and so today's passage, you know, it's one of the most popular stories. You've, if you know any miracles of Jesus, you probably know about Jesus, you know, feeding the 5,000 or feeding the 4,000, feeding the large crowds. There's a couple of different times it's recorded in the scriptures. Um, it was, it's one of the most popular and well-known in our world. It was one of the most popular and well-known in the ancient world. It's the only miracle besides the resurrection that's recorded in all four of the gospels. So even the New Testament writers thought there's something here in this miracle that you don't want to miss. Um, Mark himself actually records two very similar supernatural feeding miracles. Um, he, he's got one here, and then one we'll revisit later where it says Jesus fed 4,000 in almost an identical circumstance. So this was a thing he evidently did a few times. Um, and then Mark goes out of his way. In chapter 8, he records that Jesus is frustrated with the disciples, specifically looking back to this story that we just read that we're going to look at today saying, like, you don't understand the significance of what happened. So Jesus himself called back to this as something that, like, disciples ought to see what, what this means. So um, there's, there's something in this story that adds up to more than just, whoa, Jesus is powerful. We've had a lot of, whoa, Jesus is powerful stories throughout Mark. And there's probably more going on with all those as well. But this is one where it just felt crucial to say, okay, we, we want to get below the surface and see all the little literary clues that Mark is leaving us um, to really let the full weight of this thing hit us more than just, great, he can feed a lot of people. Well, that's cool. So to help us see it, I, we don't usually start this way, but this, this, might, this is probably really boring for most of you. And then there's like four people in this room that are like, all right. Uh, I don't know why I did such a creepy voice and creepy fingers. Um, it is what it is. Uh, so I want to just, just take a moment to start by mentioning a few key events from the history of Israel across the whole Old Testament that inform this passage we're about to read. And we'll do this quickly. But the story in March 6 reaches all the way back to Genesis and, and, and has thematic connections all the way through, like, the, obviously the Torah, the history books, even the, the prophets, even the writings. We've got connection to, to, to Psalm 23 that's really important and other passages as well. This isn't even exhaustive. But I just want to see some key moments here uh, connected to this theme or this idea of shepherding. And if you've been around church any amount of time, you've heard the word shepherding. You've heard the, the metaphor shepherd for kind of spiritual protection or activity. And shepherding was a useful spiritual metaphor for the biblical, um, in biblical times for, for ancient Israel uh, and so on, because shepherds were everywhere. Um, it was a very common and very crucial job for life in Israel. And so everyone knew what a shepherd was and what they did. If you don't know, they gather sheep, they protect sheep, they feed sheep, they guide sheep who can't do these things for themselves. And so 
if we go back to Genesis 48, we have the first, the first instance of when God gets referred to as a shepherd, as Jacob uh, refers to him as the one who has shepherded him throughout his life. And that's, that's interesting, metaphor applied to God. You skip ahead to Exodus 16, after all the great events of the plagues and, and Moses leading his people actually out of captivity in Egypt into freedom uh, and on their way to a new land. In the, in the, the wilderness, People began to get hungry and they began to complain. And we're told this story of uh, basically God supernaturally raining down this, this what's called manna from heaven, this weird kind of bread stuff uh, that was just supernaturally there on the ground for them to take and eat. And it sustained them for years in the wilderness. And Moses was kind of the, the shepherding presence there, kind of mediating that between the people and God. Um, and the idea was that the people could only take what they could eat for the day. God, God through Moses, commanded them, don't take anything. Don't try to store this up. Don't, don't be fearful that you have to hoard this for the long time in the journey. He says, I'm going to give it to you every day exactly what you need. Literally, the daily bread. So Moses is introduced here as kind of this under-shepherd figure. If God's the chief shepherd, Moses is kind of serving as his under-shepherd. But when Moses was about to die, Moses was told in Numbers that he's going to die. And so he, he's pleading with God, actually, for a new shepherd to come and care for Israel, to carry the torch that Moses had been carrying. I'll just read this, Numbers 27, verse 15. Moses spoke to the Lord saying, let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them, come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in. That's all shepherding in the metaphor. That the congregation of the Lord may not be as sheep that have no shepherd. That's Moses' prayer to God. And the Lord said to Moses, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hands on him. So God says, I'm going to raise up Joshua to do the very thing you're asking. You can read about him in the book of Joshua. And then you skip ahead. We're skipping a lot of stuff, but you get to 2 Samuel. And most of you probably know that the king par excellence of ancient Israel is King David. He, he wasn't perfect, certainly. And his, the last half of his life was a lot uglier than the first half of his life in reign. But nonetheless, he, he in many respects, was, was a great king. He was certainly the greatest king Israel had known throughout its ancient history. And uh, we see David, um, when he was anointed as the king, the people noted that David was already one who was functioning as a shepherd. It was you who led us out and brought us in. And thus he had proven himself to be the shepherd sitting on the throne of Israel. And so the people acknowledged that God was entrusting David with a formal role and duty to shepherd Israel as its new king. So here we see the shepherding thing kind of tied in with the formal seat of the, of the king, the throne. One of David's psalms, Psalm 23. We talked about this over the summer, this psalm. But this here too, we, we, you've probably heard these words or you might have them memorized. The Lord is my shepherd. So David, the shepherd of Israel, is actually saying, the Lord is my shepherd. He's the true shepherd. I shall not want. What does he do? He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul, and he leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. So, so even David, as the true shepherd, identifies the Lord as the ultimate one, the, the standard bearer for what shepherding looks like in the kingdom and family of God. 
And then Isaiah 56, we, we have, and in other places in the prophets, we have these condemnations of Israel's shepherds. So the priests are sometimes referred to as shepherds, uh, the kings, other leaders, uh, religious teachers, whatever. And Isaiah 56, 11, 12 says, but they are shepherds who have no understanding. They've all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Isaiah is, is, is pointing out that these are foolish shepherds who aren't taking their role seriously, uh, and they ended up leading Israel into idolatry and all kinds of horrible situations. And then finally, Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34, listen to this. Um, and I will set up over them one shepherd, this is the Lord speaking through Ezekiel, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Now, the historical David's already dead at this point. But Ezekiel says there's going to be another David who will come and will feed them and be their shepherd. I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I'm the Lord, I have spoken. So this chapter, this whole chapter, Ezekiel 34, it's really beautiful. Write it down. Go read it later. Um, it's, it's this whole promise of God promising to shepherd his people in a new way, as well as this new David that's kind of mysterious, who's going to shepherd faithfully. Like, but why do we need David if we've got God shepherding? It's kind of confusing, uh, but our passage is going to help us understand it. So, okay, that's a lot. Done with that. That's a, that's a brief survey of kind of a, the development of this idea of shepherding, a biblical theology of shepherding across the Old Testament. Okay. Mark 6, Mark 6, verse 30. So the apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all that they had done and taught. Then because so many were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. So Remember, the, the previous story was that kind of ugly story about King Herod having John the Baptist killed, but just before that was the story of Jesus sending out the 12 to do what he did, to minister just as he did, to proclaim the good news of the kingdom, faith and repentance, uh, to work miracles, to heal people, to overcome demons and all this stuff. So the disciples were sent out two by two to do that. And now we pick back up. They came back to Jesus and they reported what had happened, all these amazing things that they had been able to do in Jesus' name. But there's no time after this kind of, you could call it a missionary journey or whatever, there's no time to even eat or rest because the crowds, the crowds are pressing in. Everyone was exhausted and hungry, we're meant to infer, but the crowds are just pressing in as Jesus and the disciples' fame keeps going out and out. It's, it's once again, this isn't the first time this has happened in Mark, they can't even eat their food because the demands of the crowds are so great. So nonetheless... I just want to highlight here, Jesus cared deeply about the physical needs of his disciples. You see, he didn't just say, hey, suck it up. We got, a, we got ministry to do here. Jesus said, look, come with me by yourselves. We're going to go find a quiet place. We're going to go rest. We're going to go eat. We're going to go recharge. We're going to go take care of you guys who are wiped. So Jesus, I mean, I just, we could... Sidebar here, Jesus, I think it's very easy. You can build a, build a great theology of work across the Bible. God himself wants us to work hard. 
If you're a disciple of Jesus, he wants you to be a hard worker. No doubt about that. Whether, whatever that is, whether it's at an office or in the home or what, wherever and whatever that looks like, you're to work hard. But he is vehemently opposed to workaholism, the idolatry of work, sort of this, I have to work or else I have no identity or else I won't be able to do this or that um, or I need this distraction to, to keep me from whatever it is that's actually bothering me. Work is a nice distraction for some people. Um, workaholism is rampant in our culture, and Jesus wasn't for it. Jesus needed rest, and Jesus wanted his disciples to rest. So just ask, do, do you create margin for rest? Sometimes, even, even, especially in ministry, people get this idea, oh, I'm doing the Lord's work. I got to work real, you know, I got to keep, keep at it, keep at it. And even Jesus himself with the 12 said, no, let's go, let's rest, get away from the crowd, let's recharge. This is what we need. And that's very specifically why even mentioning things like children's ministry, needing volunteers, we, we, we don't want any super volunteers who are like, I'll just serve every week down there because we want you to rest. We don't want the church community to be a place where you are just spent and spent and spent and spent. That happens in a lot of churches. We don't want that here. We want good rhythms of hard work, yes, and generous rest. Generous rest. So there you go. Sidebar. Jesus and rest. And of course, the, you know, we could, I think we're meant to see this as well. There, there is no place where you get, the, there's no place where you get the kind of rest that you get in the presence of Jesus. I mean, we're, we're meant to see that here. Come with me and I'll give you rest. That's the whole key aspect of the gospel is that the gospel is not achieved through work. Your salvation can never be earned. It is a free gift that you come to him with nothing but faith and receive it open-handedly and find rest in the deepest matters of life your your eternal salvation it's it's a it's a move of rest of just trusting what he has done for you i think we're meant to see that here but nonetheless the crowd has other ideas so let's keep reading but many who saw them leaving recognized them look at this (laughs) They saw them leaving, they recognized them. They ran on foot from all the towns and, and, and somehow found the spot that Jesus and the disciples were going to try to try to pull in and beat them there. They got there ahead of them. And Jesus landed, the boat lands on the shore, and he sees again a large crowd. And just imagine for a second what, this, what Jesus and the disciples must have felt like. They're already wiped, exhausted, probably uncomfortable with people pressing in. And they, they, they get away, they think they're going to have a quiet moment or maybe, maybe a few nights or whatever to, to recuperate, and the crowd is already there. No rest for the weary. Um, you know, as, as a parent, this story just reminds me, and we're kind of in the middle of one of these cycles right now where, like, there's certain days where I'm so tired, and then I get to bed late, and then I have to get up early for whatever reason, and I'm just so looking forward, even to the little sleep that I'm gonna get. And a crying baby wakes me up, middle of the night. A kid wakes me up. You've all been there, like whether it's with a child or some other responsibility, a phone call, this or that, a stomach ache, whatever. Your rest is interrupted. Your rest is interrupted. Your crucial rest, the rest you need to function 
what is Jesus like? What is the, the Jesus that we hopefully all worship and follow and proclaim as Lord? What is he like in this situation? What is Jesus like in a moment of being worn down, physically spent? How does our king respond? How would Jesus respond to the crying infant in the middle of the night? Unlike me, who responds with grumbling and frustration and maybe just pretending that I'm asleep so that Susanna will wake up and go check. That's about half the time. So I, I don't know if I've ever told you that before. Sometimes I pretend. You ever do that? No? Okay, good. Um, how would Jesus respond to the crying baby in the middle of the night? Well, he responds with compassion. Of course he does. Unlike me, Jesus responds with compassion. Hear this. Tired and hungry, dare I say hangry, our king's response to this crowd of people he doesn't even know is compassion. This Greek word here um, for compassion, it's, it's to have deep compassion or deep sympathy. And this word is only used of Jesus in the disciples, or Jesus in the Gospels. And it's the same word that Jesus uses to describe the heart of the Good Samaritan. The Good Samaritan who sees the suffering man who's been beaten and robbed, who stops and cares for him. That's the word that's used here. It's the same word that, that the Father uses, that's used of the Father by Jesus in the parable of the two sons. When the prodigal son runs away, squanders everything, ends up in a pigsty full of filth, blowing his money on horrible things, he comes back in shame and disarray and embarrassment. And you know what the Father has for him? This compassion. This compassion. It's the same word used in those two key parables of Jesus is the heart of our king, it's the heart of our God. Compassion. And his compassion came from, from this idea that he realized that they were like sheep without a shepherd. And we've just read that, right? That's, that's Moses' prayer to God that he would appoint a shepherd because he does not want the people of Israel to be like, a sh like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is self-consciously taking that language upon himself. He sees that Israel is like a sheep without a shepherd now at this point in history, and he's moved by it. Behind this idea is this idea that his people were meant to be shepherded by God, but they had repeatedly left God as their shepherd, and the under-shepherds that they did have, especially at this time, the, the priests, the kings, the other teachers. Think about the story just before this. King Herod, last week. We're meant to read that back in here. Those are the kinds of shepherds that Israel has. They'll execute a man, have him beheaded because of his pride and his lust and whatever else. That's the status of the shepherding world at this time. And so Jesus was here to take up the task properly. He's, he, this is a key, key, key layer to understand this story. And it's, there's a specific reason Mark chooses to include that language, like filling in artistically the mind of Jesus here. He had compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Note that. Note that. So what did he do? What did it mean for Jesus to shepherd these people in this moment? Well, first of all, we see that he taught them. He began to teach many things. 
And every time that, that this gospel uses the word teach and doesn't explain it, I think we're meant to read back what we've already seen about the teaching of Jesus. We've said this before, but it's probably some combination of what he said in Mark chapter 1, verse 15. He said, the, king, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the good news. Maybe Jesus is teaching portions from the, the Sermon on the Mount teaching kind of the ethical vision for life in his kingdom. Maybe he's throwing in some parables. We've already read about how Jesus liked to teach in parables to teach about the kingdom as well. So you can kind of backfill all this. We don't have Jesus' teaching here, but we can assume it's of a piece with what we've seen before. So he taught them. He spoke the words and wisdom of God to them. An indispensable part of the spiritual shepherding or the spiritual shepherd is speaking the word of God. Because fundamentally, there's no greater need that anyone has than to hear the words of God. Jesus spoke those to them. It also says that he, he, he taught many things. So I think we're supposed, supposed to see like, uh, time is passing here. Um, and this leads to like a mini crisis that we'll pick up in the next verse. So he's, he's teaching them, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. But, verse 35, by this time it was late in the day. So his disciples came to them, even the most spiritual and pious amongst us at some point were going, okay, Jesus, okay, I got to eat, man. <laughs> this is great, oh, but I'm, I'm getting hungry. And the disciples said, hey, this is a remote place. It's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages, buy themselves something to eat. It's rational, reasonable. Hey, it's getting late. We're far away from anything. We need to get these people out, out of here so they can eat. But Jesus answered, you give them something to eat. You do it. And they said to him, they start to argue with him, we see. Uh, in the Greek, the text says literally, should we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread? And a denarius was basically a, 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 basically a day's wage. So they're saying to feed all these people, it would take 200 days worth two-thirds of a year money's worth to have enough bread to feed all these people. Like, are you serious? You, should we seriously go and do that? You can hear the snark in their voice there. Should we seriously go and spend two-thirds of a year's salary to feed all these people? That's where the ESV kind of short, shortens it. That would take more than half a year's wage. That's, that's a fine translation of that. And so... You know, they're pushing back a little bit. What do you mean, us feeding? What are you talking about? And Jesus just, uh, he asked them, how many loaves do you have? Go and check. And they, they found out what they had amongst them. They said, we have five. Five loaves, two fish. Okay. Well, here's where things get wild. So Jesus, verse 39 Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups in the green grass. You hear that? Why is he talking about green grass? Why, why, why does Mark need that detail? He makes me lie down in green pastures. Literally, go sit down in the green grass in groups. So they sat down in hundreds and fifties and taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and he broke the loaves. And he gave them to the disciples to distribute to the people. 
and he divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. And the number of men who had eaten was five thousand. Uh oh. Paper's sticking. So, Jesus kind of becomes the, the, the director here. He tells the disciples to have the people sit down in the green grass. He made them lie down in green pastures. And he gives thanks to God for the food. He breaks it. He divides it up. And we, by the end of the story, we see that he had somehow supernaturally multiplied this. And, you know, I, look, this is crazy. And some of you in this room may not be followers of Jesus. You may not believe in the miraculous. You read this and you're like, well, okay, great fairy tale you've got there. Um, and all I can say is this is the claim that, that the Bible makes. It claims that this Jesus uniquely in human history was the son of God. And as such, he had authority over even the laws of physics themselves that he could do something like this. And even more miraculously that he could raise from the dead just a little bit later. And that's kind of what everything hinges on. Because if, if, if this is the kind of God he is, if this is the kind of thing he can do, then there is hope for you and there is hope for me beyond the grave. And if he can't, then there's nothing. There's nothing. And this isn't always easy for me to believe, but right now, I, I'm compelled by it. I believe it. I, I think this is true. Crazy as it is, I think Jesus can do this. I think he did do this. I think he will do even greater for you and for me in the life to come. So, he divided the fish, we learned he supernaturally multiplied it, and once again, like manna in the wilderness, there is enough for everyone. Five loaves, two fish, enough for everyone. And then he gave it to the disciples to distribute. And notice that this little detail, it captures basically the whole game about how God works in the world, in the age that we live in, in the church age. Jesus works, cares, serves, acts, not exclusively, but seriously, majorly, substantially through his body, the church. So we get a preview here. And that's the way it's been since Genesis 1. You know, what, why did God create Adam and Eve and say, hey, I want you to be rulers. I want you to cultivate. I want you to go and subdue the world. He's just in the habit of, of, of giving his creatures that he loves authority. He gives it away. He says, you do it. You lead. Adam, Eve, you guys rule this place. And do it in step with me. Do it in a way that's healthy, of course, a way that's good, the way that I'm good. But God is just in the business for whatever reason. I think it's just his incredible generosity that he just does that. He just hands away power and responsibility and partnership in his purposes. And we see that here. He doesn't distribute the food. He says, you guys do it. I'm giving it to my people for them to go and do my will out here in this situation. Another implication here, another implication here that, fly, that, that comes out of that, hey, you, you do this thing, is that if Jesus cares about the physical needs of the people, so must we. So must we. We're the ones who are called to do something about it. You know, it's really, you could imagine the disciples here kind of, 
you know, seeing the sun go down, people are getting hungry, they're far away, they're like, hey, G- Jesus, we know you're the kind of guy who cares about this kind of thing, cares about people getting fed, people being taken care of, so why don't you, you know, take care of this? And Jesus eliminates that distance between them and him. He says, no, if you're my disciple, you care too. You're the ones that have to do this. There's no backup plan here. You are my agents in this world. That's the whole reason I've called you to me. That's why we're traveling together. This is another step in their preparation to actually carry the church and the mission of God forward. Once he ascends to the Father, it's going to come. It's going to come. If Jesus cares about the physical needs of people, so must we. Or as James puts it in James 2, 15 through 17, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Perhaps James had a story just like this in the back of his mind when he wrote that years later. One commentator, I I thought this was really well said. His name's David Garland. He said, we have not done our duty if all we have done is point out the problems in society and lament them. Some make a career out of itemizing the world's ills. Isn't that right? I think that's social media in a nutshell. And I, I will disclaim this. I know that social media can do a lot of good in terms of raising awareness about things, moving people to action uh, by informing them about things that they wouldn't have otherwise known about. Of course. Let's get that out of the way. I, I readily acknowledge that. But so much of social media is simply expressing the right outrage at the right things and then about everything, everything going on in the world at all times, you got to make sure that you know about it, you show people that you know about it and that you have the right opinion on it, that your heart is sufficiently broken on it. Jesus and James would say, if you say go in peace without giving them what they need, what good is it? It's dead. It's dead. Cataloging the ills of the world is not what the church is to do. We're to be Jesus' hands and feet to bring his healing and his peace and his hope into those ills. Amen? Amen. One other thing to note here. Note that just like the disciples, we'll just apply it, we'll just skip ahead and apply it to ourselves. Like the disciples, we have nothing to give except that which we get from Jesus. You know, he, he has what the people need. I don't. You don't. You know, insert person here. No one has what the people need except him. He has what the people need, both his teaching and his miraculous provision of bread. We're the middlemen and the middle women bringing the things of Jesus to the people who need them. Don't miss that part of the story. He didn't, he didn't make them the end of this. He's the one who does it all, and he says, you take to them what is mine, what I'm providing. So it is with us here. And the end result is that everybody, 5,000 men, and uh, we can assume that there were also women and children there as well. Who knows the number? We're leaving 12. They, they all ate their fill. And it left 12 baskets of leftovers. And I just love that detail too. 
You know, in the wilderness in Exodus with Moses, the command was don't take any more than what you need for today. And that's good and beautiful. Trust God daily. But you just get this picture of the overflowing abundance of Jesus here. It's the new and the truer and the better. There's 12 baskets of leftovers after feeding who knows how many people. It's amazing. So that's the story. And I want to just, don't always do this, but I want to just, just highlight what I, what I think are a handful of takeaways we need, to, we need to take away from this so that we don't miss them. Most of these things are things we've already mentioned, but I just want to make it explicit. Explicit. First, this is another in a long line in this gospel of miraculous uh, experiences and evidences of Jesus' power over the material world. He is not limited by any material limitation, not even death itself, because he's the Lord over creation. And his loving concern for his people is not limited by his means. You know why? Because his means are unlimited. Again, if that's not true, then this is all fairytale great. But if it is true, then everything is different. Everything is different if that is true. Second, Jesus cares about physical needs. And tragically, um, so many people uh, in the church, we, we have this, this over-spiritualized idea that, that like, only what matters is, is the spiritual. And of course, the spiritual matters. Of course, like, believing the gospel and growing in intimacy with Jesus, all those things matter. The point is that they're not divorced from your body or your neighbor's body or the physical world. And that's why, you know, the heaven that we're anticipating when Jesus comes back to put all things right is not disembodied spirits floating around in clouds or like babies in diapers with harps. Where'd that come from? I don't know where that came from. It's not that. That's not, no. It's a new heavens and a new earth and a city, a beautiful city with the tree of life and the river of life running through it and people coming and going out of the gates. Activity. It's real life. It's not something strange. It's real life perfected without the sin, the stain of sin infecting it any longer. So imagine, imagine Portland without historic levels of gun violence. No gun violence in Portland. You know? No corruption. No sin between person to person. No evil. No injustice. No abuse. No mistreatment. No homelessness. Starvation, hunger. Can you imagine it? We can't, I don't think we can. That's the picture. It's, it's a new heavens and a new earth with him reigning as king, the only one who's good enough to do it. And if that's the case, that has implications for now, that Jesus cares about the physical, so must we. So there is nothing unspiritual. In fact, it is deeply spiritual to meet the physical needs of your brothers and sisters and of your neighbors. This passage reminds us not to separate the physical and the spiritual. Third, we've got to notice again the way in which Jesus utilizes his people to be his hands and feet. This is a preview. This, this story is projecting out to the way things are going to be once Jesus leaves the scene and empowers his people through his Holy Spirit to carry his work forward. That's the age we live in, the age of the church. 
So since Jesus cares about physical needs, we're to reflect him in the world and how we live amongst, serve, and work to meet the physical needs of one another and our neighbors. This is a crucial part of life in Jesus' kingdom. And then fourth, I'd say most importantly, and maybe this is the one that would be easiest to miss if we hadn't done what we did at the beginning of the sermon, we are supposed to see in this story Jesus as the fulfillment of so many promises and the culmination of so many themes that point in one direction. This Jesus is greater than Moses as he gives the supernatural bread and even greater abundance than God did through Moses. This Jesus is greater than Joshua, the one that Moses asked God to provide to shepherd his people. And he is the God with his people amongst them. We see here that he is the good shepherd. Though the people had no shepherd, the good shepherd is here to make his people lie down in green pastures. He's the shepherd king that every good king, every good king in their good moments was a shadow of, a reflection of, even in their small ways. And he's the good king that every bad king is a degraded mockery of. This passage is intentionally using imagery and language and themes from across the whole story of God up to this point to reveal that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the promised one that wraps up all these themes. How is God going to answer that thing that he said in Ezekiel about the shepherd that's coming? It's kind of David and it's kind of God. It's God in human flesh. Who could have predicted that? But that's what happened. But there's a bit of a twist here. Because even if people were prepared for the Messiah, they were certainly expecting and hoping for a Messiah. Maybe not necessarily the God-man, but they're expecting Messiah. But, but we're supposed to see, even still, even though that Jesus is the culmination, the only possible culmination of all that had been laid out and all that was being expected, the way he's going to shepherd his people is surprising. And I think it gets summed up in his words in John 10, 11. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Maybe there are other shepherds who will protect the sheep for a while, but honestly, pretty much all of them, if the going gets tough, they're going to bail, they're going to leave, and let the sheep fend for themselves. Jesus says, I'm the good one, the one who lays down his life for the sheep. Remember how the story began. Jesus, the disciples, they are hungry and they're tired and they're being hounded by the crowds and they try to get away for, for rest and they're continually pursued and they can't get a break. But in his compassion, what does Jesus do? He foregoes his rest. He says, lie down in the pasture. He foregoes his food. He says, here's Here's this to distribute. Jesus leaves this story hungrier and tireder. Is tireder a word? More tired than he was when it began. And the people get rest and they get fed. And this, in its own way, is a subtle, or maybe not so subtle, picture of the gospel. He cares about their well-being even to the point of his own suffering. And that is exactly what will happen on the cross. To meet humanity's deepest need, victory over death, 
uh, forgiveness for their sin, amending of their separation from God, and on. We could talk about it a whole number of ways. But Jesus dies. He's killed. He's executed publicly, humiliatingly on a Roman cross for all to see, unjustly. He dies the death that everyone else had earned except for him because he was the only spotless, sinless one. He lays down his life for the sheep. This passage becomes a preview, if you have the eyes to see it, of what Jesus is going to do on Calvary for you and for me and for anyone who would receive him in faith and trust, receive that free gift and that rest and that sustenance and that place in his family that he offers. He dies in their place, in your place, in my place, that we might live. Do you have eyes to see it? That's our king. That's the good shepherd. And as far as I'm concerned, there is no other hope. Let's follow him. Pray with me.